Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Lisa Belkin is the author of Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. Lisa is also an award-winning journalist and the author of narrative nonfiction books. Her career at the New York Times included stints as a national correspondent, medical reporter, and contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. She lives in Westchester, New York. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your new book, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. Zibby, I've been looking forward to this for years. It's great. (laughs) For years. You're so funny. Okay. This has a very interesting origin story. Tell listeners about how you came upon this story. And then we're going to dive into some of the the ways these families intersected and how this is really a story of 
multiple cultures and so much other stuff. So much other stuff. That should that should eloquently be said. That should be the subtitle. <laughs> so much other stuff. Yeah, it's at its heart, it is a family story in many ways. So it's a story about a lot of families, but one of the families is mine. Um, it started when my mother remarried late in life to a man who I didn't know well was getting to know one day when I was visiting them, and he started to tell me a story. And it was a very long story. And I tend to, you know, interrupt and show that I know stuff. And I just this time listened because he was trying to to get to know me and have me get to know him. And in the end, the story was the heart of this book. So he told me a tale about when he was 30 years old. He was a young doctor. He was not stationed in a military zone. He was stationed at a prison at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, Illinois. And the shortest version of this long, epic tale is that he befriended a prisoner who was working for him. My stepfather was working in a lab set up at the Stateville Penitentiary to test malaria drugs on prisoners. An entire other topic of conversation, it would not be allowed today. But at the time, it was considered the Army's best hope because malaria was devastating troops in any war zone it went into. World War II, South Korea, Vietnam was looming. And so Al was there to find a cure for malaria. He was also there to help rehabilitate prisoners by training them to be lab techs, by working side by side. He got to know one he thought very well. The man, his name was Joe DeSalvo, asked for his help in securing parole and talking to the parole board. Al did, in fact, help, helped him quite substantially. He was paroled. Joe did very well. Then things went very badly and a police officer was killed. And he told me this story. And I looked at him and said, you know, I have to write about this, don't you? And he said, well, well, if you must. And that nine and a half years later became this book. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Well, what you do so well, well, there are many things, but you have us get to know the families all the way back, like as far as you know, so that by the time Joe DeSalvo is working with your stepfather, I feel like I've known him so long because I knew his parents. For a hundred like, years. Know we've, known, yeah. yes, we've known his parents <laughs> and his grandparents. Well, let's start with him because his backstory is so interesting. And I did not know anything about the motorcycle culture and how it was like the, I don't even know, Formula One of its day, essentially. It, it meets like the Roman Colosseum and how his uncle and his dad had, had been in that world. And you raised so many interesting questions. But t- just talk a little bit about the craziness of that culture. And right. I don't so know I why it's been mean, lost. I didn't mean to go back a hundred years. It just happened. Um, okay. Sorry. I, I meant, I meant to write a book about what happened to these men in 1960. And then I was really struck by the fact that they'd all started at the same starting line, right? They all had grandparents who came at about the same time in the late 1880s, early 1900s. And they came for the same reasons, the reasons we're still arguing about today, essentially to give these kids a better life. And these kids were now 30 years old. And how did all of them start in essentially the same place? And one became the cop, one became his killer, one became my stepfather. So 
you can now do this research in your pajamas. And in <laughs> my pajamas, I at least got the, the scaffolding of the story, the basics of the story. And Joe's story led me to these newspaper clips about a guy with a same name who turned out, in fact, to be his father, who was a, you know, I could have been a contender, the, that he was a contender. He was an almost made it. He, the brass ring was in sight in this world of motorcycle racing. I mean, who knew? It, from 1908 to 1911, motorcycle racing was apparently the most popular sport in the United States. It was far bigger than baseball. It was bigger than football, which had not you know, been incorporated yet. There was no NFL. Huge arenas were built. And yeah, your Roman Colosseum analogy is, is absolutely spot on. These men went to die, or, or many of them did die for the possibility of that brass ring of this future in America. And his father, you could argue, I do, had a spectacular, one particularly spectacular crash that made it into all the newspapers where I passed it past forensic pathologists nowadays. And I said, here's what I know about this. What likely happened to him? And they all said traumatic brain injury. And it would explain the huge personality change that you can find in the record, it would explain why he, you know, went through the rest of his life basically bullying everyone around him, um, depressed and angry, and his children paid a price for that. And one of his children was this young man, Joe, who would grow up to come to know my stepfather, who tried to help, who tried to redeem him. And it was arguably too late. So you kind of, you have to go back a hundred years to truly understand the whole of any of us. And I had the luxury or I don't know, the stupidity of, of doing it. Um, and it took, it took me almost a decade, but I, I too really feel like I know these people at this point <laughs> down to their DNA. Yeah. Well, you present them so completely. And even the questions that you raise, right? Joe and Charles, his twin brother, were five minutes apart, and yet their lives went in completely different directions. And you raise a question, when does it start changing all future generations? Is it in that moment? Is it which decision? Can one decision really affect all the DNA of the people who come later, which is fascinating to contemplate, right? Well, there is the idea of epigenetics that that you can in fact inherit trauma, for instance, is well established. And in many cases, this was trauma. What, yeah. what happened to the father traumatized the son. And yes, they were twins. They were not identical, but still they were twins. They started, talk about the same starting line. I mean, we're talking about two boys born at the same time. And now you, you have um, this metaphor of a starting line in, in their racing. They both raced, one slightly ahead of the other all the time. And yes, at what point was it nurture? The older son was always treated as slight as the older son. He was always a bit more of the golden boy. He, where did that become 
established fact where if you if you do this often enough how does this become established fact and by the time they started racing the older brother was known as the winner and the younger brother was already seen somewhat as the loser and trying to catch up and trying to prove himself and being more reckless as a result and this went on to literally affect three men in 1960 well, you also go through all the other men and another big storyline that you have, which I feel like I feel like a theme of the whole book is is what can we do with prisoners in terms of reformation? You know, there are all these different approaches and you detail one really well with the warden and his wife and the horrible fire and all these different theories on how prisons should play a role in society. And of course, you start by saying something like, how you treat your prisoners is a major reflection on the state of the country as a whole. But there were some real pioneers in prison life and prison, I'm not saying the right words, reformation or restitution. Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Um, Yes. The word is penology, which utterly, you know, amuses friends of mine for reasons. I mean, you know, it's (laughs) penal reform people. But yes, so so in, in penology circles and carceral circles, there's, you know, there's a lot of philosophy that I tried to make much more human because we're talking about individual lives and how do we change the trajectory of individual lives as a society? What is our philosophy? And there's the pendulum that's always there in pretty much everything policy-wise. We, we always react to what we've been doing by replacing it with something else that we then replace with usually a version of the thing we just abandoned. And that is true of prison reform. And that pendulum, people can't see me, but my hand is going back and forth. That pendulum is particularly profound when it comes to prisons, because depending on the state of the country, depending on how secure we as a population feel, we take that out on our prisons. So when we are feeling anxious or, or unmoored, we are very much about punishment. And when we are feeling expansive and optimistic, we are all about reform. And the 1950s, which is right before my stepfather arrived at this penitentiary, was the latest in the optimistic, we can help them, we can fix them, we can make the world a better place philosophy. So he walked into that. But by that point, this prisoner who he'd interacted with had been through several swings and he'd been very punished and he'd been very, you know, rehabilitated. But it all, yeah, it all started. I couldn't just start in 1960 because, you know, what's the fun of that? So we went back to, to 1911 with one of the first deeply reformative wardens who made a difference, who proved that trust actually creates men who internalized that trust and when released didn't come back. But as it happened, there was an accident on his watch and his he lived within the prison walls and his wife was burned to death in a fire in that prison. And The result of that act was the end of rehabilitation that was getting legs, that was was getting um, traction in the U.S. She might not have died in the fire. She might have died by blunt force trauma. 
Um, she died during a fire. Um, it is unclear how, yes, and it is unclear by whom. And it's still very debated in small but passionate circles in <laughs> Illinois um, as to who killed her. That's and I don't believe it's the man that no. was convicted for it. Neither did the warden. Yeah, that was also very interesting. But then you also have, you know, Irish immigrants. And then you have, I mean, you take us all around the world and what, well, from the world and steerage on boats. And I mean, it's amazing. I feel like I've just watched like a Martin Scorsese movie or something like Gangs of New York or I don't know, something. But the the one thing that like kept going through all of this, I felt was how much these random small things change lives. The little thing on the train, which affects where you sit on the train, whether you're sleeping with your head on your jacket or you're sitting up or you're getting a cigar, whether you're in the fire, like in that place or you're not, or you're, I mean, everything is so, it just hinges on the smallest details and then makes it, I don't know, it, it's almost overwhelming because it's like every little thing you do then can have such massive ripple effects, you know? <laughs> I'm hardly the first person to have come up with this, right? It's something that fascinates all of us. I mean, how many first, you know, couple dates, you go out to dinner and and the first conversation you have with the other couples, how'd you meet? Mm -hmm. And there's always some coincidence in there. And this coincidence changed everything. And we all have these moments in our lives and we're all very, very aware of them. And we watch movies like Sliding Doors and we know about the butterfly effect and we are aware that there is this web of stuff that led us to who we are, but we don't sit down always and map it out. And you know those crazy people with the murder boards, you know, with the the yarn that goes connecting all these things that yeah, don't... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, be- yeah. I became the crazy person with the murder board. And there was... It, but it was larger. Even though one of these stories was my stepfather, it was not my family's story. So I now know far more about my stepfather's family than my own, which is a bit of a point of contention in some <laughs> family. You know, yeah, really? There wasn't a book in us? But... That feeling of this is all of us. This is true of all of us. I could write a book about you and I and how we ended up on this podcast. And there would be a book. There would be the same book. I hope there wouldn't be a murder, but there might be. And right, any random three people on the street have all these connections. And what is the point other than, you know, a parlor game? I think the point is it's helpful. It it behooves us, to use a word that no one ever actually uses in the world, to remember this, to remember that the decisions we're making now are, in fact, a map for future generations that they are going to have to follow. So why is this relevant to us, to a current generation, because every decision we make is in fact setting a scene for some someone down the line. So individually, it is important to at least be aware of that. And on a policy level, at a 30,000 feet level as a society, this book is full of the GI Bill saved that one. Mm-hmm. This prison policy saved or destroyed that one. These are not just 
policies and philosophical debates. These are actual individual lives. And even if you can't save all of them, or even if everything doesn't work all the time, it made me far more conscious of the fact that there's a responsibility to deal with with public policy and and social norms with an understanding that this is just someone's this is truly someone's life. True. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Another thing I learned from the book, aside from all of reinforcing what I know about life in general and learning about all these different subcultures and different pockets of time and places, is how tremendous a journalist you are. I mean, to have all this information, there is so much information in here. I can't even believe that it's not like two feet high of a book. You wove in so many facts that you couldn't have known before into this like seamless narrative. And that, I mean, there must be a lot you didn't include. There must be, I mean, how did you go about this massive undertaking? Well, first of all, thank you. And secondly, oh, you didn't see the first draft. (laughs) I cut 70,000 words from the first draft. And I knew it was too long while I was writing it. And I came to see the first draft as the director's cut, if I can get, you know, self-important here. But not less about my ego and, and, you know, me as the director, this is the whole story, as I started to feel very responsible for the families I was writing about. I was finding out these things, and it was not my story I was telling. It was their story. So the first cut was basically everything I knew. Everything. Here. And I gave it to them. Here is everything I know. And then I went back and I cut with an idea of, okay, what does everyone else not need to know? And it's it's wonderful that they do, but the rest of us, the average reader, doesn't need it. And so I started with, I mean, 70,000 words is a book. I cut a book out of my book. 
<laughs> and and I tried to slip a lot of it into the end notes, by the way. So if you read the end notes, there are yeah, all these those were like stories. 50 pages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those little stories that I stuck in, like, no, this was really a good story. It doesn't actually fit <laughs> in, in my story, but this was a great story. So so that's how I did it. I wrote it and then I rewrote it uh, because that's the only way to deal with that much information. And and that's why it took almost 10 years because, yes, the, I learned a lot. I went down a lot of rabbit holes and then I had to figure out which ones were actually interesting or which ones were just interesting to me because I found it. And that probably took two of the, the 10 years. Oh my gosh. So how do you feel now that this is out there and done? Like I've been a journalist now for what, oh, lots of years. Let's just say <laughs> lots of years. And this is the single most ambitious thing I've ever done. And it's gratifying. It It was a deeply gratifying work. Gratifying on a process level, just to, to exercise muscles I hadn't used before. Gratifying in that particularly from the police officer's family, whose children are now in their 60s, but who were three, four, and six months when their father died, they experienced it as getting their father back. Mm. So it was deeply gratifying that way. And it was a change for me in my view of the world. And I was a journalist and it was all about what happened yesterday, right? What, 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 what happened now? This was going very far back and archival research, which I had never gotten to do. And an understanding of, we think this is the first time this has ever happened, but really you can look at almost anything, including the past four years. And there are examples of how this experience is universal. I mean, I was writing about 1918 in 2020. And 1918 was was a horrific year. I mean, more people died of the, the flu in 1918 than died from World War One. And World War One killed a lot of people. And so I'm sitting there writing about this ghastly plague in 1918 as it's coming in 2020. And I looked at my husband and I said, I want to go back to 1918 because I know how that ends. So I guess I've become a bit of a historian in addition to being a journalist. So that was also the the personal sort of takeaway from this is that I am deeply invested in history in a way that I wasn't before. So it, it changed me. This book changed me. Amazing. Wow. That's so great. So does this mean you want to delve into new giant history projects? I have one that's that's kind of caught, you know, you know how ideas work. They grab you and they don't let go. And so I have one that seems to not be letting go. You know, I've, I've tried to shake her off and she's, um, <laughs> she, she is there. It is very much a book about women um, in a way that this is, well, this one is, Technically, you would describe it as a book about three men, and yet the women kept coming front and center, Mm -hmm. right? It was also very much about these women who had much less agency than we do, far fewer active choices, and yet paid the price for what their men did. 
So the women were kind of in the background waving at me in in this book. And the next one, I think, will probably be front and center and giving at least one particular woman her say. But yes, I'm, I'm going back to the past again, I think. I think this is a good a good spot for me. Well, you're really great at it and you bring the reader in. Some history books can be hard to keep your interest. You know what I mean? But this is engrossing. The way to, to write narrative nonfiction is a gift. It's anyway, you're anyway, I'm not trying to just to blow smoke or oh, whatever, but it's, no, no, but it's really good. <laughs> all, all the adjectives you want. Um, yeah. it, it is, it is different. It is different. I have huge respect for people who write fiction because my imagination just isn't deep enough. Can't do it. If, you know, put a person in front of me and I can find a story in them, but tell me to find one in my own head. I can't memoir. That is personal. I need the screen, the journalistic screen. So yes, they're all, they're all different genres. Um, but this is the one that's sort of my, my natural groove. But you said in, in the book or somewhere what your, you have a title picked out for your memoir. What is it again? <laughs> There's a story in this somewhere, but again, that's that's very journalistic. It's like there, there there's a story in this somewhere, and which is what I find myself. It's one of my ticks. It's something I say all the time while going through pretty much anything. Is yeah, there's a story in this somewhere. I often say that should be a book. That should be a book. That could be a book title. I think I'm like too obsessed with book titles right now. That's a great title too. Oh my gosh, yeah. Once you have a, a lens, it's like, that's what you see. Well, and and you, you have an editor's lens. I mean, you, you see book titles. I Great. see stories, right? <laughs> we, we, we are all deluded and hallucinating through I life. Know, right? I'm like, this is so, this is such a handy, handy skill. <laughs> Do you ever miss like the mother load, which is how I first met you when you edited this essay that I thought was like my biggest accomplishment. And then it got like 8 million terrible comments. I was your editor. (laughs) That was a a delight. Do I miss it? I mean, it's an interesting question right now in the the aftermath of, of Heather Armstrong's death, where there's been so much reminiscing, evaluating of where the internet was at the moment we met, right? At a moment where blogs were coming into their own, women were finding their voice in a way that they had not had an outlet for in quite the same way. They didn't need traditional publishers. They didn't need actual journalism. They could just sit down at their kitchen table, although it yeah, I don't know how many actually wrote at their kitchen table. In a way, that's an insult. But they could they could sit down and write, and then without a filter, get it out to the world. And that was spectacular for a short period of time. And then it got very toxic. And I had that short period of time, right? Mother load um, in the Life's Work column before it, when I was at the Times doing both. That was the moment where it was the best conversation on the planet, where people came to the comments to truly talk, where, you know, it hadn't yet gotten out of control. So do I miss that? Yes, I miss that. But do I want to go back to writing online and subjecting myself to that? No, no, that was a chapter and that chapter's done. And it's interesting how quickly that moment in both our lives became history. 
because it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it is definitely history at this point. Wow. It's an interesting lens as well. See, it's a story in that. And what advice do you have for aspiring authors? So I am teaching at um, Columbia Journalism School, and that is the question on every journalist's mind. So in terms of nonfiction journalism, nonfiction writing, which is what I know, they want to know why, you know, am I crazy to be here? What is the future of this profession that you are training me for? And the only answer I have is there will always be a need for journalism. There will always be a need. People will want to read other people who are trained to find facts, to express those facts in a compelling and understandable way. And the big question is, where is that going to be? And I don't know. They are going to invent it. These these students that I am teaching now are going to invent it. All I can do is give them sort of the fundamentals of what worked for me in the world in which I lived. And then that I hope I teach them well, because we're, we're counting on them. So if, if you want to write, uh, my advice is probably the same as everybody else who, who comes on your podcast, all the other millions of people, um, write, if you want to write, write, it will find a home. It will find a home that is appropriate to the moment when you're writing, but you can't find the home until you've written. So sit down and write. Love it. Well, Lisa, congratulations. This is like a triumph of a book. I really want it to be a movie. I think it would be amazing. I don't know. Has it been Work, optioned yet? Working on it. We're okay, working good. on it. Okay. Well, it's an even better book already. So congratulations and thank you for the chat. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Okay. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com